Hello, and welcome back to this, another reading of whatever the hell I want. Um, tonight, again, we're reading a little bit about Norse mythology. This is chapter six, called Morality. You don't, need to, you don't need me to tell you that the relationship between religion and morality is a question that people argue over constantly and heatedly. Today, some people believe that morality is inherently God-given, and that without belief in a particular kind of God, all morality would vanish. Others seek a basics, basis more for a morality system in Darwinian evolution, or in the desires and fears that are common to all of humanity. Regardless of what justification one might use to defend a system of morality, virtually everyone agrees Everyone equates the word morality with a code of conduct based on altruism and universal compassion, even if the details may differ between various systems. The Vikings would have thought of all that as a stinking pile of dragon excrement. The only connection between religion and morality in the Norse world was that they were both a part of the same cultural system. Morality didn't derive from religion, and religion didn't derive from morality. Gods and goddesses didn't decree moral codes. There was no Viking Ten Commandments or anything like that. Naturally, deities looked for favorably upon ritual piety and unfavorable upon, upon ritual impiety and negligence. But that kind of religious piety was and is categorically different from morality, because performing rituals properly and reverently has nothing to do with how one conducts oneself in daily life. Nor did the gods and goddesses simplify moral behavior. There is a common misconception that myths, the stories and lives and deeds of the deities, were supposed to teach proper morals. Maybe that was true for other peoples, but it definitely wasn't true for the Norse. The myths assumed that their readers held particular moral conceptions in mind, which were sometimes implicitly referenced in some of the details of the stories, but the stories didn't go out of their way to teach morals. Their intents lay elsewhere. They often featured the deities doing things that would have been unspeakably shameful to the Vikings, such as breaking oaths and committing incest, without any subsequent lesson for their human listeners. The behaviors of the gods and the goddesses was more of a reflection of often sordid realities of the Viking age than it was a reflection of the Vikings' moral ideals. Morality, therefore, belonged to the human social sphere rather than the religious sphere. Furthermore, whether or not the Vikings even had a standard of morality is debatable and depends on how you choose to define the word morality. If morality is defined broadly and loosely as simply a standard of conduct that is that one is expected to follow in one's day-to-day -day life, the definition we'll be using here in this chapter, then the Vikings did have their own morality. Such a definition is wide enough to include what the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously called the morality of mores, that is, a system of morality that consists of nothing more than social norms. That was the only kind of morality the Vikings had. 
As you can probably guess from the preceding chapter, the Vikings weren't big on the idea of free will, which we today tend to see as a basis for moral action. The idea of a fixed fate greatly con constrained the range of moral choices, such that will was never free in a particular and provisional sense, and those choices that were left weren't were essentially just matters of meeting that fate in a particular way. Norse mora morality differed so much from our modern notions of the concept that it was almost unrecognizable. The final and probably most important factor that made its way into it Sorry. The final and probably most important factor that made it this way was its content. The actions of the Vikings, labeled good or bad, were a far cry from what would be considered good or bad, according to most modern systems of morality. In some cases, the two kinds of systems are even diametrically opposed. Some things that most people today would dream to be exemplary moral behavior would have been for Vikings either neutral or actively immoral, and vice versa. We'll spend the rest of this chapter exploring this particular point. <clears throat> Honor and self-interest. The Vikings saw themselves as living in a basically hostile universe. They were helpless against the cruelty, the cruelly capricious dictates of fate. The climate was icy and the landscape was perilous and unyielding. Enemies were always close at hand, whether from the outside of one's trusted social group or from within it. Nothing in life was a given. One had to toil and fight for whatever one had. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that the Old Norse placed a high value on capable, accomplished warriors and the traits that such a person embodied. Things like peacefulness, kindness, and compassion were not held up as inherently positive ideals. People were frequently peaceful, kind, or compassionate, but just as often and perhaps more often they were violent, gruff, or vengeful. And those latter behaviors were often valued just as highly, or even more highly, than the more pleasant ones. For example, in a remarkable and chilling rehearsal of the common practice of comparing one's enemies to beasts and animals as a way of justifying one's slaughtering them, the Vikings routinely cast themselves as beasts, and in particular predators like bears or wolves, and their enemies as their prey. By invoking such imagery, the Vikings justified their own brutality not on a basis of their innocence of having committed some transgression, but rather on the basis of their simply being the superior power and fulfilling the natural order of things. But just as there was no golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and no altruistic rationale that determined what the valued savage, what, what was valued, savagery for the sake of savagery wasn't valued either. Instead, the basis of Norse morality was self-interest as defined by and expressed through a certain code of honor. The concept of honor enabled the Vikings to channel their inherent selfishness into pursuits that also served the interests of the communities to which they belonged.
for the Norse, as in most other historical cultures that have placed a high value on personal honor, the chief good was one's own name or reputation. Particular kinds of actions increased one's stature in the eyes of others, and other kinds of actions diminished it. The most honorable behaviors and character traits, as evidenced especially in the sagas, were manliness, generosity, hospitality, valor, courage, eloquence, and loyalty. Most of these were actions that benefited others in one's community, but crucially not those outside of it. Some of these actions could even be as altruistic in a different context. The poet Eagle Saligrimson, for example, once said, I am, a, I am quick to sing a generous man's praise, but stumble for words about miser, misers. But in this context, even generous generosity and hospitality weren't truly altruistic actions. They may have helped others along the way, but that wasn't their ultimate intent. In the words of, anth of anthropologist, anthropologist Richard Bauman, not only did honor have to be enacted and observed, it had to be publicly acknowledged by, by being talked about and evaluated. The quest for honor was thus certainly a quest for reputation, resting on the need to be well talked about. End quote. A chieftain gave his warriors prized gifts and threw lavish feasts for them because he wanted them, and poets, like Eagle, to praise him for his generosity. A family who let a traveler spend the night in their home did so because they wanted others to see them as being hospitable, and so forth. Of course, it could be argued that an altruistic morality is actually motivated by this same selfish impulse. But either way, the Vikings harbored no illusions about their ultimate self-interest. <clears throat> Sexual and gender-based morality. Now we come to an aspect of Norse honor and morality that many people find to be upsetting, or at least ugly. But it was a central element of the Viking Age values and was referenced throughout North mytho mythology, Norse mythology and religion, so it's something that anyone interested in this topic has to grapple with sooner or later. Consider, consider the following episode from Gisli's saga. A farmer named Thorbjorn <laughs> funny name, had a generous, strong-willed daughter named Thordis. When she reached the age of marriage, a suitor by the name of Skeggy, the dueler, a rough brawler, as his nickname implied, came to Thorbjorn's farmstead and asked for Thordis's hand in marriage. Thorbjorn refused and offered a half-hearted excuse, but everyone knew the real reason why Thorbjorn had turned down Skeggy's request. Thordis was already seeing another man by the name of Kalbjorn, a well-to-do local farmer. So the dueler, angry and humiliated after being rebuffed, stormed off to Kalbjorn's house and challenged him to a duel for the hand of Thordis. Kalbjorn was terrified, but agreed, <clears throat> no, noting that no one would think him worthy of Thordis if he declined. On the night before the duel was to take place, however, Gisli 
Thordis's brother, went to Kalbjorn and asked him if he was prepared. He found Kalbjorn panic-stricken and questioning whether he would actually go through with the duel. During their conversation, Kalbjorn asked the stronger, bolder Gisli to fight in his place. Gisli harshly ridiculed... Excuse me. Gisli harshly ridiculed Kalbjorn, calling him the most despicable lowlife in the world and saying, correctly, that Kalbjorn would bear a heavy shame for the rest of his life. But in the end, he agreed to take Kalbjorn's place. The next day, Skeggy and his men arrived at the appointed location and waited for Kalbjorn. A long time passed, and neither Kalbjorn nor Gisli showed up. So Skeggy said to his carpenter, Ref, carve two life-size wooden statues of Kalbjorn and Gisli. Set them up with one standing behind the other, penetrating him. <laughs> and may this monument of scorn neath remain here forever to mock them. At that very moment, Gisli appeared from the woods. Give your farmhand something better to do, he sneered at Skeggy. Waving his axe in the air, he growled, Here is a real man who will fight you. The duel raged. Both men fought fiercely and skillfully, but eventually, in one tremendous sweep of his axe, Gisli sliced through Skeggy's shield and into his leg, severing it at the knee. Despite his unbelievable pain, Skeggy had the presence of mind to know that he had seconds to save his life, so he immediately offered to pay Gisli a great sum of money to end the duel then and there, and not kill him. Gisli accepted. From that day forward, Gisli's victory increased his reputation considerably, while Skeggy had to walk with a wooden leg. Presumably, this was the use to which he ended up putting Ref, his carpenter. The single most important word in Norse notions of honor and morality was drengskepper, which meant manliness, high-mindedness, and courage. For the Vikings, therefore, manliness meant much more than simply having one kind of genitalia rather than the other. It connotated all sorts of virtues, the ones discussed above in examination of the code of honor, that were thought to make different make the difference between being merely biological, biologically a man or a real man. The opposite of Drengskipper was Ergi. Ergi meant first and foremost in manliness, but like Drengskipper, it contained a host of other connotations. The primary <clears throat> insinuation was that a man had adopted the re- receptive role in a homosexual intercourse. In the words of philologist Elder Heidi, Heidi, for a man to be penetrated by another man was the ultimate unmanliness because that symbiotically turned him into a woman. Injury in the buttocks had the same effect. End quote. Someone who would do something so extremely unbecoming of a drenger was thought to necessarily also lack the other qualities of a drenger. 
in particular, he was a coward, hence Skaggy's estimation of Gilsey, Gisley, and Kalbjorn as homosexuals for having failed to show up for the duel. Someone who is willing to adopt a passive role sexually must have also been willing to adopt a passive role in life more generally, or so the thinking went. The practice of sorcery, or at least certain kinds of sorcery, sorcery was also thought to be quintessentially arger, the adjective form of ergi, for reasons that will become clearer in chapter 10. Ergi was the subject of formalized in of formalized insults, nith, which were mentioned in Norse law codes. They included comparing a man to a female animal, mare, bitch, etc., saying he had given birth, saying he had played the part of a woman every night, every ninth night, and saying he would perform sorcery. A nith was typically given verbally or in wood, whether through writing in runes or through sculpture, as with Skaggy. Nith was a crime as horrendous as rape and murder, and was punishable by foul by full outlawry in many cases, effectively a death sentence. It's surely no coincidence that Gisley appeared from the woods to kill Skaggy immediately after the latter had accused him of Ergi. Gisley was determined his drangskipper, his honor. Whoops, misread that. Gisley was defending his drangskipper, his honor, with the same fervor and violence that would have been stirred up had Skaggy killed or raped one of Gisley's family members. Ergi was also so shameful. Ergi was so shameful that legal officials would sometimes try to persuade the involved parties to settle matters on their own so that the case wouldn't have to be brought before the legal assembly for everyone to hear. Among the deities, Odin could be seen as Arger due to his being a practitioner of sorcery. He was taunted for being such and was once exiled, outlawed for this and other shameful behaviors. Loki, however, was virtually the model of Ergi. This can be seen most clearly in his having mothered a foal in the story of how Asgard's wall was built. Not only did he adopt a receptive homosexual role to do so, but he actually turned himself into a mare, a formal nith, and gave birth another f- formal nith along the way. What about Viking women? Unfortunately, the sources provide far less information on Viking conceptions of honor and morality as they pertain to women, but they do drop at least a few clues. For one thing, women were occasionally said to be arger, and judging by the context of such passages, these seem to be an accusation of nymphomania. What is nymphomania? A noun, uncontrollable or excessive sexual desire in a woman. Additionally, while acts that were determined... While acts that determined a person's or family's honor were almost always carried out by men, 
Women also played a more or less socially defined but behind-the-scenes role in such matters by goading men into action, whether for conflict or for peace, when the men failed to take what in their eyes was the appropriate action. The sagas are repeat with examples, replete with examples of such goading. Needless to say, the Vikings didn't actually share our modern ideals of gender equality or sexual freedom. Gender roles and expect expectations were quite sharply defined, and manliness was a much higher ideal than womanliness. While women did enjoy certain rights that would later become unavailable to them with the acceptance of Christianity, and while Edis and Sagas contain numerous examples of strong and independent women, Viking society as a whole granted men considerably more power and prestige than women. Chapter 7 The Self and Its Parts Today, most of us think of the self as having two or three parts, a body, a mind, and perhaps depending on your own religious convictions, a soul. The Vikings too thought of the self as having different components, but they believed in more and different components than we do. The Viking self was an integral being. All of the parts added up to a more or less cohesive whole, as they do in our view of self as well but the parts could also function independently of one another and could disassociate themselves from the others and go their separate ways under certain circumstances. We've already seen on numerous occasions how Norse religion was never, was never made into a neat and tidy system while it was a living tradition and how informal and fluid it was. The Norse view of the self was another prime example of this resistance or apathy toward foisting a smooth order upon the roughness and boisterousness of a lived experience. The sources never offer a list or a map of the different parts that comprise the self. Different sources mention different and contradictory parts and characterize them in different and contradictory ways. This tendency is too persuasive to be due to a mere misunderstanding, pervasive, this tendency is too pervasive to be due to a mere misunderstanding of what was originally a totally orderly and coherent system. No worldview is, has ever been, or will ever be totally orderly and coherent. Those that are more coherent than others are generally those whose creators have gone out of their way to impose a rational organization upon them. But in the case of ancient tribal religions that known that no one ever attempted to make into a doctrinally tidy system while they were still believed and practiced, expecting the same level of, ti of tidiness one finds in the worldviews of individual philosophers, for example, is just plain ridiculous. That being said, the sources do indicate that some parts of the self were more widely believed in, and the concepts were more fully developed than others. In this chapter, we'll explore four particularly widely remarked upon parts of the Viking self and their dominant characterizations. However, intriguingly, in the Norse religion, whoops, skipped something. 
One of these four parts was physical, and the other three were spiritual. However, intriguingly, in the Norse religion, for something to be spiritual, it didn't necessarily mean that it was truly immaterial or incorporeal. Instead, spirit was an especially fine kind of material substance, much like air, and as in many ancient cultures, spirit was synonymous with breath. Like Latin, animus, anima, and spiritus, and Hebrew, rock, Old Norse had one word for both breath and spirit, owned, spelled with an O with two dots over it. Spiritual parts of a person could leave through his or her respiratory passages after death, and while, the spir- and while the person was still alive, spirits could enter him or her through the same respiratory passages. For example, when a spiritual part of a person detached itself from him or her and traveled to another person, the re- recipient of the spirit would often yawn or develop an itchy nose. <laughs> <laughs> The hammer, H-A-M-R. The first of these four parts of self, and the only one made of solid matter, was the hammer. Hammer literally meant skin or hide, but essentially the same as what we would call today the body. It was the visible visible part of the self that housed the invisible parts. However, whereas we tend to view the body as fixed and mostly unalterable, the Norse saw the hammer as something that could be changed radically by some people. Hammer was the central part in the vocabulary of shape-shifting. Because the hammer was the shape that was shifted in the magical process, a shape-shifter was called a hammer hlepa, a hammer-leaper. And the verbal phrase for to shift one's shape was, oh dear, shipta homum. Homum was was the dative form of hammer. Okay, the hugger, hugger, H-U-G-R. One of the three invisible spiritual parts of the self was the hugger. The hugger was someone's personality or mind, the intangible part that corresponds most closely to what we mean when we speak of someone's inner self. It encompassed thought, desire, intuition. The Old Norse word for foreboding was hugbot, and a person's presence the feeling others get when they're around the person. People described as having an especially strong hugger could make things happen somewhere far away without being physically present. At times, the hugger could even leave its original owner and enter into somebody else. One could make a person sick by thinking about them in an envious way. The hugger of the thinker traveled to and entered into the one who was thought about and instigated physical reactions. This could be done in a more or less involuntary and unconscious way, or as a part of a deliberate attack. If it was an attack, it would have simply harmed the person directly, or it could have proceeded by more subtle and indirect means, making the victim sleepy, depressed, 
or generally weakened so that the attacker could overpower the victim, whether physically or by getting the victim to do something that he or she wouldn't otherwise do. The Filgia, spelled F-Y-L-G-J-A. The second part of the spiritual parts of the self was the Filgia, plural Filgur. The verb Filgia meant to occupy, to help, to side with, to belong to, to follow, to lead, to guide, to pursue, depending on the context. The Filgia's spirit did all of those many things, and the best translation of the noun Filgia is probably attendant spirit. In both senses of the word attendant, one who accompanies and one who helps. Filgur were always visible to those with second sight, the ability to see the invisible spiritual phenomenon on a regular basic basis, and they were visible to those without second sight during dreams and at the moment of death of the, at the moment of the death of the owner. Just before someone died, he or she sometimes caught a glimpse of caught a, caught a sorry. Just before someone died, he or she sometimes caught a glimpse of her or his dead Filgia. In this and other ways, the well-being of the Filgia and that of the owner were intimately bound up with one another. This shouldn't surprise us, since, after all, the Filgia was part of the owner on some level, even though it could separate itself from the rest of the self at times, just as, all, just as could all the other parts of the self. Except for the skin. The Filgia often worked to protect the person of which it was a part. On one of the sagas, for example, a sorceress planned to kill a man at an upcoming party. The man's Filgia warned him about the danger in dreams for three nights in a row, and then finally gave him an illness that prevented him from being able to go to the party, thereby saving his life. The only constant in the visual form of these attendant spirits was the only constant in the visual form these attendant spirits assumed was that they were always female. Sometimes they appeared in the form of a human woman, but more commonly they appeared in the form of an animal. The particular animal form taken by the Filgia often signaled something about the person's character. Someone with a bear for a filgia was likely highborn, while someone with a wolf filgia was bound to be especially aggressive, and someone with a fox filgia was cunning and shrewd. Sometimes, however, the form in which the filgia appeared could be situational. For example, an attacking army might be accompanied by a host of wolf filgia. To avoid possible confusion, the Filgia having an animal form was different from a person shifting his or her shape, hammer, into that of an animal. The Filgia accompanied its owner in a spiritual capacity while he or she in his or her usual form, while shape-shifting involves transforming one's physical sensory presence. There's the last part. The Hamingya. Spelled, spelled H-A-M-I-N-G-J-A. Hamingya. The final part of the Viking self we examine here is the Hamingya, luck or fortune, fortune, plural Hamingur. 
In the words of the Old Norse scholar Bettina Sommer, luck was a quality inherent in the man and his lineage, a part of his personality similar to his strength, intelligence, or skill with weapons, at once both the cause and expression of the success, wealth, and power of the family, end quote. The surest test of the strength of a person's hamingya was his or her for fortune in battle. I wondered if this one was going to be male. Like the filgya... Oh, never mind. Like the filgya, the hamingya was always female, even for men. The appearance of a hamingya is seldom, de seldom described in the sources, but Viga Gloom's saga provides a striking image of one, an enormous woman whose shoulders were so wide that they touched two separate mountains. The Hamingya was typically passed down through family lines. <clears throat> Naming a newborn child after a relative could, would ensure or at least increase the likelihood that the relative's Hamingya would be passed down to the child. Sometimes, it seems like the dying or dead person could decide to whom his or her hummingya went, and at other times it seemed like the hummingya decided itself. A living person could also lend his or her hummingya to others to accompany them on particular endeavors in which the extra luck would be of great use, such as a battle for a long and perilous or a long and perilous journey. The lines between hummingyur Filgur and the Valk and Valkyries were especially blurry. All were female helping spirits, and all at least sometimes moved from one person to to one of that person's children or grandchildren when the original owner or partner died. There was, of course, a su substantial conceptual tension between luck and fate, just as, the, as there was between fate and moral choices. But true to form, the Norse didn't seem to have been particularly bothered by such philosophical niceties. In the harsh words of the Viking Age, which it's in the harsh world of the Viking Age, with its constant strife and unforgiving Nordic weather and landscapes, any means of explaining one's fortune and or gaining more control over it was highly prized. And we'll do one more. <clears throat> Chapter 8. Death and Afterlife. The intrepid Vikings have spent a successful year in the south and east, trading with the locals in many different lands through, through which they've passed. Now at the Volga River, hundreds of miles from their home, one of the leaders has died. They place him in a temporary grave with a wooden covering while they hold his elaborate ten-day funeral. Ten days, really? I thought they liked nine. Okay. His great fortune they divide into thirds. One-third for his family, one-third for exquisite garments for his body, and one-third for liquor. <laughs> that the mourners would drink night and day for the next week and a half. 
This is no party. A few of them will die with cups in hand while ceremoniously carrying out their leader's funeral arrangements. The members of the dead man's family, who have accompanied him on this trip, assemble his slave girls and ask them which one will agree to die with him. After a long silence, one of them, a beautiful blonde twenty-year-old, musters the courage to say, I will. She has spent the last these last years being sold by and to various different owners, all of which have forced her to cater to their every desire, and have raped her at their pleasure. Although she doesn't say it out loud, this finally is her way out, and it carries an additional benefit. Despite the horrors that await her shortly before she's killed, until then she will be treated like a queen. Two of her fellow slaves are appointed to accompany her to do whatever she orders them to, and we may surmise to prevent her from changing her mind and trying to run away. While the slave girl indulges her every whim with merry abandon, the people busy themselves with crafting the dead man's clothes and preparing his ship for its final use. The cups in their hands and by their sides are never empty. They feel increasingly ill, and thought of sobriety seems like a happy dream they had long ago. Yet, for the sake of their master, they drink on. At last the day arrives in which the bodies of the high-ranking man and his slave are to be burned. His boat is drawn out of the river and dragged up to the top of a great wooden platform. A group of men place a bed in the center of the boat, with pillows and a mattress of fine Byzantine silk, and erect an A-shaped pavilion above it. They remove the wooden covering from the noble's temporary grave and exhume his body. It has turned an eerie coal black, but otherwise is the same as before. He doesn't even smell. With him in his grave... With him in his grave had been liquor, fruit, and a drum. These two are removed. The corpse is dressed with the clothes of the peop- with the clothes the people have spent the last several days crafting. A brocade caftan with buttons of gold and a brocade cap with sable fur. He is borne up to his boat and placed on the bed in the pavilion. Next to him are placed basil, onions, fruit, mead, bread, and, of course, more liquor. The people bring a dog before the ship, and two men hold its trembling body in place while a third cleaves it in half with, wow, with one massive chop of his axe. The two halves of the unfortunate, unfortunate animal, gushing blood, are thrown on board. Next, the dead man's weapons, axes, daggers, and a spear, a sword, and a shield all uncommonly fine workmanship, are placed beside his corpse. Two horses are forced to run and run until they are almost at the point of collapsing from exhaustion. They are then rushed by sword-bearing men who furiously hack their still-living bodies to pieces. Two cows are made to suffer the same agony. The chunks of muscle, bone, skin, and organs of these four animals are collected and thrown onto the boat. A rooster and a hen are killed as well, this time by beheading and likewise thrown onto the ship. Now it's the slave girl's turn. Oof.
Her days of indulgence have come to an end, and one final short period of torment awaits her before her death. First, she is passed around by the, by the other noblemen, each of whom has sex with her in turn. Tell your master that I only did this out of love for him, each says to her. Then she's led to a wooden door frame built in the open air. The men lift her up over the top with with her feet on her palms. She says the words of she says the words the ritual requires. There I see my father and mother. They let her down, they hoist her up again, and she says, There I see all my dead relatives sitting. They set her on the ground briefly before lifting her over the frame a third time, and she says, There I see my master sitting in paradise, and paradise is green and beautiful. There are men with him, young and old, and I see him motioning to me to come to him. Take me to him. Though the words are only a formality to her, as she says them, she finds unsettlingly that she can almost see what she tells the others she is seeing. They lead her to the boat where her master's corpse lies. A thick-bodied sorceress, whom the people call the chooser of, of the slain, Valkyrie, takes the girl's bracelets off her arms. The girl removes her two anklets and gives them to the two fellow slave girls who have served her these past several days. They are, in fact, the daughters of the witch. The men lift her onto the boat. They hand her a cup of liquor, and she drinks it and sings a song, wherein she bids her fellow slave girls farewell. She continues singing as the men give her another cup. Eventually, the chooser of the slain cuts her off and orders her to drown to, to down the cup and enter the pavilion where her master's body lies. The girl does as she's told, but hesitates at the last moment, leaning her head out of the pavilion. The, whips, the witch grabs her head and pushes her in. The men standing around the boat take up wooden clubs and bang them against their shields so that when the girl cries out in terror and agony, her screams will be drowned out, and the other slave girls won't be discouraged from following their masters to death at some later date. <coughs> Six more men have sex with the girl inside the pavilion with the ten-day-old corpse. Jesus. After they've finished, they lay her next to her master on the bed. Two hold onto her feet and two hold onto her hands. A sorceress wraps a cord around the girl's neck and gives the two ends to the remaining two men. Then the chooser of the slain takes out a dagger and begins to stab the girl between her ribs over and over and over while the two men pull on the cord around her neck. At last her suffering comes to an end, and she finds the respite for which she has been yearning. The men and the sorceress exit the ship. The closest male relative of the deceased nobleman strips naked, picks up a torch, and walks backward toward the ship, holding his hand over his anus to prevent that orifice from being penetrated by any uncouth spirits who might be lurking around such a highly charged proceeding. <laughs> okay. He lights a fire in, in the wooden structure that holds the boat. All the people then throw torches of their own onto the wood. The fire slowly reaches the bottom of the boat, then the top of its sides, and finally engulfs the pavilion where the bodies of the dead man and girl lie. 
The stench of burning flesh fills the air. A fierce wind comes out of nowhere, emboldening the already roaring blaze. A man shouts joyfully that Odin has sent this wind so that he can have the nobleman in his company sooner. Within an hour, nothing remains of the ship, nobleman, slave girl, animals, and treasures, but a smoldering pile of ashes. Over the ashes, the people build a huge grave mound. At its crest, they place a wooden pillar onto which has been carved the name of the dead man and his king. Then, with their long and arduous task finally complete, they pack up their belongings, get into their ships, and resume their journey up the Volga River. Such is how the Viking nobleman's funeral in the land that is today Western Russia was described in the 10th century by an Arab traveler named Ahmed Ibn Fadlan. This particular retelling is informed by the interpretation of archaeological of archaeologist Neil Price and includes my own conjectures about the character's possible inner thoughts. Ibn Fadlan's account can't be taken as being representative representative of all Viking funerals, or even all funerals of men of a particular class. For example, many Vikings, including those of noble stature and even kings, were buried rather than cremated. Modern scholars take issue with some of the details, but many of the other details, a much greater number, are corroborated by archaeological and literary literary evidence. And there is certainly a ritual formality involved with every step of the intricately choreographed 10-day funeral, which suggests that it's an enactment of a traditional procedure, perhaps one with a now-lost myth behind it. All in all, we can reasonably, we can be reasonably certain that Ibn Fadlan's account is broadly honest and accurate is a broadly honest and accurate description of one particular Viking funeral. Clearly, the nobleman's passing was a big deal for his community, who took great pains to ensure that he was given a proper send-off. But what kind of place was he sent off to? The land of the dead. The safest and most widely applicable characterization of what the Vikings thought happened to a person after he or she died is historian E.R. Ellis Davidson's comment that there is no consistent picture in Norse literary tradition of the fate of the dead, end quote. To which she adds that to oversimplify the position would be to, to falsify it, end quote. This is yet another instance of the lack of rigid doctrine in the Viking religion. The only point the sources gener- generally agree on is that the deceased went to, lived in, to live in the other world in some way or another. Archaeological evidence seems to confirm this. The dead, including human sacrifices, were buried or cremated in such a way that suggests they were being prepared for a journey to somewhere far, far away. Sometimes they were burned, changed into air or spirit along with their ships, servants, and provisions, as we saw in Ibn Fadlan's description of the funeral on the Volga. When the dead were buried, they were often buried with some means of transportation, such as a wagon, a horse, or a boat, as well as food and other things that would be useful to them on the long journey. Fascinating. 
Old Norse literature contains vivid portrayals of the journey of the dead to the other world. One hand, one had to traverse deep and dark valleys, torrential rivers spanned by creaking bridges, caves, high walls, and such foreboding places. Giants often guarded the way and had to be appeased before one was allowed to progress further. All of these elements served to depict the distance between the other world and this world, as well as the perilous, uh, as well as the perilousness of the path to the other side. Sometimes the sources speak of the land of the dead as a single place for everyone. In such cases, it's often referred to as hell, H-E-L, which meant simply the grave. Despite the name's coincidental resemblance to the Christian hell with two L's, the two ideas have essentially nothing in common. We've already seen that the Vikings didn't believe in any kind of moral punishment in the afterlife, and although Snorri tends to describe hell, one L, as a vaguely bad place, he is alone in doing so. His version is highly confused on a number of points and has a strong air of Christian influence. Right, because he was from... Uh, a few hundred years ago only. The other sources, even when they mention hell, rarely describe it. But when they do, it's cast in a neutral or even positive terms. For example, the mention that the land of the dead is green and beautiful in Ibn Fadlan's account is mirrored in a passage from Saxos, the medieval Danish historian, as you'll likely recall. In Saxos's telling of the story of Hadding, the hero travels to the underworld and finds a fair land where the where green herbs grow in its winter on earth. Oh, finds a fair land where green herbs grow when it is winter on earth. His companions even beheads a rooster just outside of that land and flings its carcass over the wall, at which point a bird carries it out and it comes back to life, a feat which is highly reminiscent of another detail from Ibn Fadlan's... from Ibn Fadlan... Wow, getting tired. Namely, the beheading of a rooster and a hen whose bodies are tossed into the dead man's boat shortly before it's set aflame. In both cases, the emphasis is on abundant life in the world of the dead, and when death and absence prevail on earth. At other times, the dead were said to go to specific and different places. Many of these were simply local variants of hell, the grave. One prominent example is the hill called Helgafell in Iceland, which was said to be the resting place of the early settler Thorolf Mostrarskig and his family. Even those who died a great distance away from the hill went into it after death. According to Erbigya Saga, Thorolf's son was Thorstein, a fisherman. One night at the age of 25, Thorstein and his crew were fishing and drowned out at sea. Before word of Thorstein's death reached Thorolf and his family, a shepherd happened to be walking near Helgafell. In the darkness, he saw one side of the mountain open up, 
Firelight glowed from within. He could hear the sounds of feasting and celebration, and heard someone exclaim that Thorstein was about to be welcomed into the hall of his ancestors, and would sit at the head of the table opposite his father. Here, too, the underworld is hardly a place of punishment, but rather one of merriment and reunion. Recall that the slave girl in Ibn Fadlan's account was likewise likewise sees her dead relatives waiting for her in her vision of the afterlife. Some of the more specific places to which the dead went seem to have something to do with the manner in which one died. For example, those who drowned were sometimes said to go to the underwater realm of Ron, a female giant. Note this contradicts Thorstein's situation. One poem credits Freya with receiving half of the weapon dead into her domain of Folkvang, and while there are no explicit references to Thor ever being the recipient of the dead, one line of the Song of the Greybeard might simply imply that some or all of the people of the lower class did indeed come to him upon death. Valhalla. But most prestigious of all, the of all the distant or semi-distant afterlife worlds was Odin's Valhalla. Old Norse Valhall, Hall of the Fallen. According to the Song of the Hooded One, the gold-bright hall of Odin had a roof made of shields, which was held aloft by spears that served as rafters. The benches of the feasting tables were breastplates. Wolves guarded the door and eagles circled above it. And the Song of Vrthfrudnir tells us that the men who dwelt there who were called Einherjar, those who fight alone, battled each other every day, but at the end of the day all their wounds were healed, and they sat down to drink and feast until full health, in full health and happiness. Huh. They ate the meat of a boar that came back to life every time it was killed and eaten, providing an endless supply of food for the hungry warriors. To gain entrance to Valhalla was seen as a high privilege and was an honor for which many Vikings eventually yearned with great adore. For example, when the saga hero Ragnar Lodbrok is about to be executed at the hands of Anglo-Saxon King Ella of Northumbria by being thrown into a pit of writhing venomous snakes, he defiantly declares, I shall not come into Odin's hall with words of fear on my lips. I am eager to depart. Gladly I shall drink ale in the high seat with the Acer. I die with a laugh. However, the question of one, of how one earned admittance to Valhalla has been subject of considerable con controversy. As with so many other aspects of Norse religion, the answers provided by the sources are ambiguous and conflicting. The most commonly repeated distinction is the one by Snorri in the Prose Edda. Those who die violently went to Valhalla, while those who die by peaceful means went to hell. But <laughs> oh, that's interesting. But Snorri reminds himself, but but Snorri himself contradicts this in his version of the story of the death of Balder. Balder died by stabbing, yet nevertheless went to hell. The most straightforward conclusion is that Snorri is here, as elsewhere, trying to artificially, artificially systemize a religion of his 
forebears, and that this tidy distinction in his own is his own invention. Nevertheless, Snorri doesn't seem to have been entirely off base. Other pieces of Old Norse literature suggest something similar. The Song of the Hooded One, for ex- Hooded One, for example, holds that half of those who died in battle were taken to Valhalla, while the other half were taken to Volkfang, Frey's realm. It says nothing about what criteria were used to divide the weapon dead, however. As we've already seen, the song of King Eric has Odin state that his reasons for admitting the king to Valhalla are Eric's bloodthirstiness and success in battle. Hints of the same view can also be found in Saxo's various sagas and other skaldic poems. However, this picture becomes more complicated when we note that, in addition to the contradictions on points of detail between the aforementioned sources, Odin often brought about deaths of heroes himself, which would seem to spoil the notion of entrance to Valhalla being granted based on something that the warrior did himself. We can also note that Bragi, a poet rather than a warrior, was a prized resident of Odin's Hall. It seems that the necessary necessary credential for entering the warrior's paradise of Valhalla upon death was first and foremost simply being chosen to enter by Odin and his Valkyries. This decision was largely influenced by things like having been a great warrior during one's life, having died a violent death, having had a social status, and having piously kept up with the proper ritual observance connected to Odin during one's life. But ultimately, it was up to Odin and he chooses whom he chooses oh and he chooses whom he chooses for the perfectly personal and selfish reasons that he wanted to have the mightiest possible host to defend him himself against Fenrir the wolf at Ragnarok for that was the ultimate fate of all Valhalla's residents to fall by their master's side in the hopeless struggle during the downfall of the cosmos Death was only a respite, a change of state before the utter obliteration of Ragnarok. Was Valhalla a part of Hell, the grave, and the more general land of the dead, or separate realm altogether? There's good evidence that it was seen as being a part of Hell. In Saxos, when Hadding travels to the realm of the dead, he finds a battle raging without end in one area which can't help but remind us of the daily fights of the Einherjar. In southern Sweden, there are a number of prominent rocks that bear the name Valhall, apparently from Valhaller, the Rock of the Fallen, which seem to have been seen as local resting places for the dead, much like Helgafell in Iceland, or entrances to a more general land of the dead, given that the names Valhall and Valhul are practically identical, especially since in Old Norse, A became O with two dots under certain circumstances and vice versa. It is difficult to cleanly disentangle the two. Then again, some sources seem to treat the Valhall as being part of Asgard, which was located in the heavens. The question of Valhalla's relationship to Hell, therefore, must ultimately remain an open one. It seems that the Vikings themselves held conflicting views on this point, as they did on so many others. Hey, 25 seconds remaining.